0: Welcome to Ms. Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, a show about all things poetry. I'm your host, Katherine Owen. Okie dokie, it is 10 o'clock. I am later than usual. It's light. Uh, usually I do my recordings and writing and reading in the poetic realm before I have breakfast. So all my poems are written on black coffee and an otherwise empty stomach. But today, I don't know, I was just up early again and had this restless night, and I thought, I need to eat toast first. So there you have it. Uh, This week, as well as our entrances and long poems, instead of an homage, we have an openers. And the opener this week is the Poetics Text, The Resistance to Poetry, by James Longenbach. This is one of my touchstone texts, actually. Uh, He wrote, I think, three more books of poetics, and I do have them all. One on the line, uh, one on symbolism and imagery, uh, but this one is the one I've reread the most. And recently I had a couple of poems accepted by the Fiddlehead, and they have an online a series called stop look listen yes with exclamation marks and they asked me if I wanted to write a little blurb on something a book or film or you know piece of music or what have you that I had re-entered on a number of occasions and write about why so I wrote this little paragraph on the resistance to poetry by James Longenbach I said, as an admirer of rampant kinds of poetics, I first discovered this Long and Back volume shortly after its 2004 publication and was instantly struck by its refusal to make poetry accommodating accessible. To evidence the strain so many other poetics texts possess in their aim to convince the reader of the genre's palatability, transparency, likability. Ah, oh, yes, I like my trios of descriptors. No. Long and Back immediately calls poetry its own best enemy and begins to explore the essential and exciting nature of poetry's self-resistance. So not just people resisting it from the outside, as we often find when we tell people that we're poets, we write poetry. There's this immediate resistance that you have to negotiate with, but poetry itself creates its own forms of resistance, which is a much more freeing notion. How reassuring to have the quality most feared about poetry the one that usually leads to English teachers posing the question, what is this poem trying to say? I always love that emphasis on trying, as if, you know, poets are kind of uh, incompetent who can't really express themselves clearly, so they just muddle about in symbolic sounds uh, and, and give the readers these curious and annoying puzzles that they need to find keys for. So what is this poem trying to say, lauded instead of vilified? Yes, to density, strangenesses, multiplicities of lingual experience. Longenbeck explores the slippery line, disjunctive leaps, generosities of sound, and opacities of narration, always glorying in the beautiful uselessness of poetry, an attribute that simmers relentlessly at the core of a poem, despite its vitality of content or its viable modes of comprehension. Check out this statement. Poems show us how it feels to like trouble. Hmm, that's a very renegade notion. Uh, outlaws love trouble. Or this query if the resistance to poetry is the wonder of poetry, how do we prevent resistance from becoming a fetish? Hmm, everything that's, you know, great and wonderful still has that capacity to tilt over into the dark side and become in and of itself uh, useless rather than meaningful. Deeply human and stylistically engaging, the resistance to poetry invites you to return to its reckless wisdoms over the years, to re-inhabit the environment of awe and ineffability the poem thrives most wildly in. And James Longenbach died a couple of years ago, so this is what we have left of him, his poetry and his important poetics. And I just opened the resistance to poetry randomly, and I saw that I'd bracketed a couple of sentences at the bottom of uh, page 56 in chapter 5, and he wrote, Language becomes a place where we live, and because we don't necessarily expect a poem to be useful in obvious or immediate ways, the language of poetry is liberated to create this potential space, hovering between the literal and the figurative. I love that notion of hovering. I was just reading Alice Fulton this morning and she was talking about how in fiction we're always anticipating the future, the evolution of the plot, what happens next, whereas poetry is that hovering in the now, which is why it can frustrate and antagonize readers who are not familiar with the place it asks us to inhabit, the space of possible uselessness, um, potentially not leaving the present, uh, just hovering in that intermediate space and not asking for anything more. And then I went to my Canadian poetry shelf and I pulled out with my eyes closed a book. And it turned out to be the gorgeous hardcover, Shared Universe, New and Selected Poems, 1995 to 2020 from Paul Vermirsch. And then I open this up at random, and here is your poem that connects to The Resistance to Poetry by James Long and Back in a most random and exquisite way, and it's called Becoming Beautiful. This year, the cicada has returned to be the hideous pest crawling in the trees instead of me. I have come down from the willow, down from the tangle of grieving boughs, in order to be beautiful, beautiful. No more will I shriek in the tree tops in search of a suitable mate. The cicada does that well enough, and I have new-found ambitions to become beautiful, rare as a white gorilla, like the one that died of cancer in Barcelona. Have a drink, and we'll toast to my improvements, my four fabulous limbs, my dolphin smooth skin, and here, where my claws once ended in warts. My hands will soon be those of a boy in a painting. I will have Samson's hair, the waistline of a greyhound. My eyes will mirror the late rising April sun. And when I'm through becoming beautiful, the red-eyed choir will sing my arrival in the trees for two weeks. You've been listening to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce word musicians.